Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the fourth audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum, and I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will explain, one, the problem with the wave theory, two, what is considered the first wave, three, the importance of looking at feminist history and the women's movements. Yes, plural. Let's get started. up and down the streets we had to fight for women's rights wore blisters on our feet we got tired of seeing all our dreams go up in smoke burdens more than we could tote having lies crammed down our throats but that old down finally broke when women finally got the right to vote today's song comes from country singer dolly Parton singing about the 19th Amendment and the United States. Dolly Parton is known as an American singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, actress, author, businesswoman, and humanitarian. She grew up poor in Tennessee, and the political roots of her background, despite her claims of not being political, are evident in some of her music, such as the song 9 to 5, which addresses women's and workers' rights. The song is part of her work on the movie 9 to 5, which is the story of three women working in an office played by Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton, who opposed an abusive, sexist boss who unionized in solidarity and made the necessary changes to improve the lives of workers. The movie, released in 1980, addresses issues of workplace sexual harassment, rights for working parents, particularly working mothers, and discriminatory hiring and promotional practices. Today's song comes from an album dedicated to constitutional amendments. The lyrics include the lines, It is the duty of the women of this country to secure for themselves the sacred right to vote. We've carried signs, we've cussed at times, marched up and down the streets. We had to fight for women's rights, wore blisters on our feet. We got tired of seeing all our dreams go up in smoke, burdens more than we could tote, having lies crammed down our throats. But that old dom, damn, finally broke when women finally got the right to vote. You might have heard that story before, that early feminism was about suffrage, which is the word that means getting the right to vote. In the American context, we are often told that August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment federally granted women the right to vote. That's not the whole story. Today, we will break down some of these ideas and think critically about some of the histories you may have learned. In the United States, this year, 2020, is being celebrated as the 100-year anniversary of women's enfranchisement, another word meaning getting the right to vote. However, 1920 was the year that white women got to vote federally. Though the 15th Amendment passed in 1870 technically granted all U.S. citizens the right to vote regardless of race, it wasn't until the Snyder Act of 1924, which admitted indigenous people born in the U.S. to full U.S. citizenship, that indigenous people in the United States could vote, and thus, indigenous 
women. Black American women were prevented from voting after 1920 due to racist and discriminatory laws and practices. This continued for decades. For example, in the 1960s, many states, particularly in the South, had literacy tests, poll taxes, English language requirements, and more, aimed at suppressing the vote among people of color, immigrants, and low-income populations. It wasn't until 1964 that the 24th Amendment targeted poll taxes, and 1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed Congress. In addition to barring many of the policies and practices that states had been using to limit voting among Black Americans and other targeted groups, the Voting Rights Act included provisions that required states and local jurisdictions with a historical pattern of suppressing voting rights based on race to submit changes in their election laws to the U.S. Justice Department for approval, also known as preclearance. In 1975, the Voting Rights Act was expanded to protect language minorities. In 1971, in part due to much activism around the Vietnam War, young people won the vote, and the act of voting was lowered from 21 to 18. In 1982, Congress required new voting protections for people with disabilities. So, as you can see, 1920 was not the date that all American women gained the right to vote. I should also note that the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013 during the Shelby County v. Holder case, and this has many implications for today's political climate and people's ability to actually vote in the United States. These include voter ID requirements, lack of language access, voter roll purges, polling place closures or consolidations, lack of funding for elections, provisional ballot requirements, reduced early voting, reduced voting hours, and poorly trained poll workers and gerrymandering. All these things particularly target marginalized voters and undermine voting rights. What about in Canada? So, in Canada, by 1900, women with property had won some voting rights, including the right to vote and to stand for office in some municipal council, library, and school board elections. They next went on to win the right to vote in provincial elections. The first provincial victory occurred in Manitoba on January 28, 1916. In 1940, Quebec was the last province to give women the right to vote. In Canada, on the federal level, some women were granted the right to vote in 1918. However, again, this is not for all women. Asian women, as well as men in Canada, were excluded from voting rights until after the Second World War. Most Indigenous people were excluded from the right to vote across Canada, except in rare cases, until 1960. After enslavement was abolished in 1834, Black women and men were not formally excluded as a group from the Canadian enfranchisement. However, the prejudice and discrimination Black Canadians faced affected people's ability to vote. So, when we talk about suffrage and women winning the right to vote, the work to expand suffrage to all women continued throughout the 20th century. What then does the focus on the dates of 1918 and 1920 for Canada and the U.S. tell us about the ways we learn and tell history? One, we can see that the emphasis is on white women's rights. Two, we can see that the history is far more complicated than we are often told. And three, we can see that the work for securing rights and justice is expansive and ongoing. This brings us to the problem with the wave theory. Have you ever heard of the wave theory? Maybe you've heard of someone being referred to as a second wave feminist 
or that voting was an issue of first wave feminism. The concept of feminist waves indicates that there are different generations of feminist activism. In the traditional understanding of feminist history, through the idea of waves, first wave feminism in the US and Canada is considered mid to late 19th century to 1918-1920. It is seen as being primarily concerned with suffrage and is often talked about as ending once women, and remember this is white women, get the right to vote. The second wave within this theory is seen as having a few different starting points, which we will discuss in the next lecture in more detail, but the starting point is often considered to be around the 1960s. There's some debate about the end of the second wave and the start of the third wave. Again, we will discuss this more in the next lecture. However, the end of the second wave is seen to be in the 1980s and the start of the third wave is usually considered to be part of the late 1980s, early 1990s. We will also talk about the contested idea of the fourth wave in the next lecture. What you can see is that the waves are organized around political concerns of the women's movements during a certain time period and are organized around the idea of generations, generations of thought and generations of activists. There are a few key issues, however, with the wave theory. One, as should be clear with the discussion of voting rights, the periodization of the first wave is really centered on white women's experiences and white feminists reckoning with certain conceptual frameworks and political work. Two, you might notice that there are time gaps. There's 40 plus years between 1920 and the 1960s. The wave theory makes it appear that no feminist organizing was happening during this period, when in fact political organizing was happening. This brings us to the third issue. The wave theory makes it seem like nothing is happening and out of nowhere, feminist organizing just starts happening, when in fact, ideas have long histories. The intellectual history of feminist theory, philosophy, and activism points to the long histories of these ideas. This also points to the difficulty in locating starting points and endpoints of ideas and activism. I will refer to the wave theory in our class sometimes because it is also the way that feminist history is often discussed, but I think it's very important that we challenge this theory and understand the debates around it. One other guiding principle that I want us to consider in our discussions of feminist history is that it is both possible and important for us to be critical of people in the past while also acknowledging the contributions that activists, writers, and thinkers made. Sometimes the way we talk about the past and people in it causes us to forget that they were people too, full of complexities and contradictions impacted by their environment and the people around them. This brings us to the two readings for this lecture. Paul Gunn Allen's Red Roots of White Feminism from 1980 and Nancy A. Hewitt's Rerooting American Women's Activism, Global Perspectives on 1848, published in 2001. These pieces both change the narrative of how we think about the first wave. The typical narrative for first wave feminism in the United States is that it begins in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention in New York. It was advertised as a convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. Held in the Wesleyan Chapel of the town of Seneca Falls, New York, spanned two days over July 19 through 20 of 1848. And as discussed earlier, the 1920s are seen as the end of the first wave with the passage of the 19th Amendment in the USA. Usually people talk about bicycles, maybe some discussion of the ties between abolitionism, the end of slavery, and women's rights activism. And rarely people mention labor struggles and unionism, and usually the narrative ends after the right to vote is gained. This is an oversimplified view. 
Historian Nancy Hewitt's work enables us to add complexity to the history and look at what else was happening at the time of the Seneca Falls Convention. She enables us to think about the intellectual history of the ideas that led to the emphasis on women's rights and suffrage at this point in history. Hewitt writes, By focusing the analysis synchronically, that is, on events occurring concurrently with the emergence of women's rights in 1848, we leave aside the question of how, many, how women moved from Seneca Falls to suffrage. We can then ask instead, how women of various racial, ethnic, and economic backgrounds and of diverse religious, regional, and ideological perspectives defined women's rights in the 1840s. How are these views shaped by the Mexican-American War, mass immigration, European revolutions, debates over slavery, race, and Native American rights? And to what extent did the agenda crafted at Seneca Falls and later women's rights conventions speak to the concerns expressed by female radicals in Europe and by other communities of women in the U.S. The answers offered here are speculative merely to open up the landscape of 1848, to relocate Seneca Falls within a more panoramic frame, and to suggest how this might help us write new histories of American women's activism by reclaiming alternative narratives of women's rights. She continues, What a world it was! Revolutions erupted across Europe, Irish peasants and later defeated German revolutionaries migrated to the United States en masse. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ended the Mexican-American War, adding new treaties and people to the United States. The Communist Manifesto was published. The Seneca Nation embraced a ring constitution for the first time. John Humphrey Noes established a utopian community at Oneida, New York. New York State granted property rights to married women. Slavery was abolished in the French West Indies. U.S. slaves, or enslaved peoples, fled north to find freedom. The first Chinese immigrants to North America arrived in San Francisco. The gold rush began. The Free Soil Party and spiritualism were founded and both attracted thousands of devotees. End quote. Think about the world that we are currently living in. Think about this past year. Our world is impacted by a pandemic. This has led to discussions about universal basic income, tenants' rights, elder care, disability rights, and more. The Black Lives Matter movement is changing, changing discussions around policing and abolition. Climate change marches drew hundreds of thousands of people. There have been discussions surrounding the rights of transgender people, the needs of parents, and the rights of workers. Land and water defenders continue to fight to protect lands and water from oil extraction. A lot is going on. Hewitt's work reminds us that in 1848, the women at the convention were also impacted by the events of their day and age. These events did not happen in a silo. Hewitt writes, In rethinking Seneca Falls, it's important to remember that the movement Elizabeth Cady Stanton, one of the organizers, championed, a movement based on liberal conceptions of self-ownership, individual rights, and suffrage, was born there, but was not alone, nor was it triumphant. Rather, the vision held by the largest and most active contingent of feminist foremothers was rooted in communitarian values and organic conceptions of both oppression and liberation, linked to agendas promoted by utopian socialists and religious radicals in Europe's revolutionary circles, the ideas advanced by feminist friends, meaning Quakers, also echoed, if sometimes unintentionally, the experiences of women in African-American, Mexican, and Native American communities founded on extended kinship networks, communal labor, and collective rights. 
self-consciously engaged in campaigns against slavery, war, and Western conquest, and for religious freedom, economic justice, and political equality, radical Quakers connected the women's rights agenda to a broader program of social transformation and more diverse networks of activists. So Hewitt's reading humanizes the organizers, but also allows us to consider the complex desires of the women who attended and the women who did not attend. The activists who were abolitionists and the activists who did not want women to have the right to vote. There are complexities here. Hewitt writes that, even with all of the limitations and shortcomings of such utopian endeavors and acknowledging that a more liberal rights-based vision would ultimately dominate the legacy of women's rights radicals is worth reclaiming for it provides an alternative foundation for modern feminism, one that incorporates race and class issues, critiques of colonialism, socialist foremothers, and an internationalist perspective. So there's some key points I want us to take away from this piece. The first, this piece explores how we might rethink the history of women's activism by reembedding Seneca Falls in the world of 1848. The second, it causes us to think about the other social movements of the time, and that ideas do not exist in a vacuum. Furthermore, social movements often intersect and interact with one another. And thirdly, it challenges the narrative of American women's progressiveness that is often expressed in the traditional narrative. Hewitt writes, under Spanish law and after 1821, Mexican law, women, women retain rights to property after marriage. They could inherit, loan, convey, or pawn property whether single or married. They share custody of children, and they could sue in court without male relatives' approval. These rights were almost uniformly denied under Anglo-American law. In the areas that came under U.S. control, women's rights had been expanded further during the 1830s and 1840s by residents distance from the district courts of Mexico. Northern Mexican women lost a lot of rights that they had with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. What this reminds us, too, is that history is not a single track of progress. Thinking about history, I want us to return to the bell hooks quote about the power of the voice from the first lecture. When we think about history, whose voices are remembered? Whose voices get to control history and the narrative? And whose voices and ideas are stolen? This idea connects us to Paula Gunn Allen's piece, Who is Your Mother? Red Roots of White Feminism. I want to draw your attention to the fact that this piece was written in the 1980s in the U.S. context and thus the use of the words Indian and Native American rather than indigenous. Paula Gunn Allen was born in 1939 on the Cubero land grant in New Mexico into Laguna Sioux, Pueblo, and Chicano family cultures. She held a PhD and taught at Berkeley and wrote poetry, fiction, and nonfiction until her death in 2008. In this piece, Paula Gunn Allen argues that many of the ideas that feminists, particularly white American feminists, spoke about and continue to speak about were things that many indigenous cultures have been doing prior and after colonization. She writes that beliefs, attitudes, and laws such as these became part of the vision of American feminists and of other human liberation movements around the world. Yet feminists too often believe that no one has ever experienced the kind of society that empowered women and made that empowerment the basis of its rules of civilization. The price of the feminist community must pay because it is not aware of the recent presence of gynarchical societies on this continent is unnecessary confusion, division, and much lost time. 
This builds upon her earlier statement in the piece that by not looking at the history, and especially at the history of people on these lands prior to colonization, Americans erase, forget, or lose important information about gender relations. She argues that early feminists were inspired by the ideas and experiences of indigenous women, but did not credit them for their ideas. She argues that these roots reach very far back writing. The earliest white women on this continent were well acquainted with tribal women. They were neighbors to a number of tribes and often shared food, information, childcare, and healthcare. Of course, little is made of these encounters in official histories of colonial America, the period from the revolution to the civil war, or on the ever moving frontier. Like Hewitt, Pauligan Allen traces the intellectual history of the ideas that impacted the early leaders of feminist movements. These histories are interwoven. She writes, unknowingly the feminists chose to hold their founding convention of Latter-day Suffragists in the town of Seneca Falls, New York. The site was just a stone's throw from the old council house where the Iroquois women had plotted their feminist rebellion, end quote. In upcoming lectures, we'll look more at the various figures who ide- whose ideas impacted the development of feminist ideas. Within feminist intellectual history, there is a mixture of forgetting, erasure, and exclusion. We can see this in women's rights activism of the 19th century and early 20th century. On the one hand, some of the earliest feminists and suffragists were abolitionists. On the other hand, middle and upper class white women who had the most power in the movement ultimately prioritized the needs of white women and whiteness above other women. Those suffragists cared primarily about white women securing the right to vote. Racism divided the suffragists. At one march for women's suffrage, for example, white women marched first, then men, then black women were forced to walk last. Journalist, co-founder of the NAACP, anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells, who was formerly enslaved, dedicated her life to anti-racist and anti-sexist work. She wrote about the ways that gender and racial discrimination were linked during this period and within suffragist groups. These divisions occurred within women's rights groups. The theme of oppression occurring within activist groups will come up repeatedly through this course. I want to finish by introducing the idea that there are many types of feminism. While Lecture 6 will explore the idea in more detail, with first wave feminism, we have a few kinds of feminism. The first is maternal feminism. Maternal feminism is the belief of many early feminists that women as mothers and caregivers had an important but distinctive role to play in society and in politics. These women saw men and women as equal but different. This kind of feminism relies on the essentialist belief that women were morally superior to men and more ethical. They saw themselves as not only being literal mothers, but as being the metaphorical mothers and caretakers of society. They argued from this, that from this position, they should have the right to vote in order to help guide society to be more ethical. Maternal feminism is tied to prohibition work of some feminists, where they work to outlaw alcohol. Again, they argued this position from the place of wanting to care for children and families. This kind of feminism also is tied to the role Protestant white women had in late 19th century religious movements in which women became very active within their churches. This ties to the concept of the softening of the home, in which women's power becomes related to the private domestic sphere. 
We can see traces of women making political arguments from their positions as wives and mothers in later periods, but the specific form of maternal feminism is from the late 19th, early 20th century. Maternal feminism was not appealing to all feminists from this period, however. Another category of feminists that I want us to consider are what I unofficially call bicycle feminists. So this isn't an official term. The bicycle came to prominence at the end of the 19th century, but was quite controversial for women. Doctors would argue that the bicycle was damaging to a woman's reproductive capabilities and mental capacity and or led to what they deemed to be sexual immorality. Bicycles represent a kind of feminism appealing to younger women where women had freedom and this corresponded with a fashion that made it easier to move. From this period, we have black women feminists who focused on abolition and later on the way that racism impacted women's rights. Later this term, we'll also look at the work of Sojourner Truth and the connections that she made between racism and sexism. The needs of working class women, women of color, immigrants were not the same as middle and upper class white women who dominated much of the discourse of first wave feminism. So, bringing it back to the start of the lecture, what happened after the right of vote was gained anyways? Some historians, such as Nancy Cott, argue that there were downsides to putting so much emphasis on suffrage, that a kind of halt to the momentum of feminist activism happened once the federal right to vote was gained by white women in 1920 in the U.S. and 1918 in Canada. To be clear, I'm not saying that gaining the right to vote was bad. Obviously not. Voting rights are important, but by making that as a central issue and not focusing on other issues, we see a kind of rupture within feminist activism in the 1920s. The feminists who worked to secure the right to vote did important work and faced main difficulties. We can applaud this work while remaining critical of its shortcomings, as future generations may consider the current activism that we do today. The battles fought by feminists in the 19th and early 20th centuries over voting rights over right to property, over marriage rights, over the right to education, and over custody rights set the stage for future activist work. They did work that future generations got to build upon and improve. In the next lecture, we will talk about the 1920s to present. You will see the themes from this lecture recurring over the course of the following century. That's the end of today's lecture. All the videos, songs, images, and graphics used on the podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F, Panska, Stronska, Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's bellcounterA.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted, unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private say, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private say, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism and review and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an educational podcast with no advertisements.